steal a car. You wouldn't steal a movie. You wouldn't steal a mobile phone. But would you steal a scientific paper? It's the 1990s and a girl called Alexandra Ilkbayan is lucky to have a home computer. The ex-Soviet states are going through something of an economic tailspin following the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Money is rather tight and Alexandra's family has to skimp and save like many others in Kazakhstan. There's no dial-up. It's still too expensive in those very early days of the internet. Alexandra's mother gets a job as a software programmer and sometimes she takes Alexandra to work with her on the weekends. Most kids would hate this, but for Alexandra, it was a real holiday. The office had unlimited internet access, and she could roam the web to her heart's content. Little did Alexandra know that one day she'd conquer the cyber world with her internet piracy empire. Hey there, you're listening to The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. This week, we're going to be talking about the pirate queen of science, Alexandra Ilkbayan. So Alexandra's managed to download 64 million papers and she's sharing them online for free. So that includes anything from Elsevier, Wiley Blackwell, Springer Nature, you name it, she's probably got it. Yeah, and I mean, usually you'd have to pay something around $30 uh, for each scientific article or you'd have to be a member of a university uh, to get access to these. But somehow Alexandra's managed to pirate all of them and they're just sitting there free on her website. It's completely illegal, of course, but yes, hypothetically speaking, you could just type in Sci-Hub onto Google, open the website, copy-paste the title of the paper that you want access to, and ta-da, you've got yourself a free paper. Yeah, and just to be really clear, uh, despite those instructions, the Medical Republic is not condoning piracy here. Yes, piracy is bad. It is a really interesting story. So, a Kazakhstani computer science graduate manages to start a piracy website at the age of 22 on nothing but a shoestring budget. SciHub is having a pretty serious impact on the publishing companies. I reckon it could be the thing that triggers the open access revolution. The publishers can't make any money if scientists start using SciHub and universities stop signing up for subscriptions. And this isn't as far-fetched as you might think. So thousands of researchers in German and Swedish universities were cut off from Elsevier last year when negotiations over subscription costs stalled. And it's not like they're just going to stop reading papers. Uh, Elsevier owns 2,500 journals, uh, and scientists really need to get access to these papers to do their research. I've heard rumours that German researchers might just start hitting up Alexandra for papers, although hardly anyone actually admits to using SciHub. Yeah, it really is a possibility. And the data is showing us that scientists aren't all saints. Researchers all over the world are already using SciHub. And it's not just scientists in less wealthy countries who can't afford to buy the papers, because the biggest use of SciHub is actually in the US, in towns near universities, that already have solid access. What I've heard is that researchers just find SciHub easier to use. It's got this really neat user interface. It doesn't cough and wheeze and then spit out a useless paper from 1998, like some digital archives. It's completely seamless. Yeah, that's true. And I also just can't get over the fact that Alexandra's managed to do this all entirely on her own, or as far as she's admitted to. And she's only 30 years old. I know, it's nuts. And it's also involved some pretty big personal sacrifices. Um, So she can't travel abroad now because Elsevier's 
sued her for $15 million and she's really worried about being extradited to the US. And even Russia's banned her website. She's got lots of people who support her project though, so lots of people donate Bitcoin to Sci-Hub and the Kazakhstani government doesn't seem that fussed about harboring an internet pirate. Yeah, so she may be being kept afloat by Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know how valuable that is. But the truth is she might not even be in Kazakhstan. Her location remains a total secret. This week I interviewed a Chicago-based science writer who's probably the world expert on Sci-Hub. But before we get to that, we've still got a few quirky news stories to share with you. So this is a story out of the UK. A 62-year-old man from Truro says he's pulled his own tooth out with a pair of pliers after waiting 18 months to get a public dental appointment. The self-surgery hurt a bit, he says, but nothing compared to the chronic toothache he was experiencing. Apparently some people have waited more than three years to get an appointment with an NHS dentist. Yeah, that makes me cringe so much. I don't want any pliers near my teeth for a home surgery. Uh, The next story is from the Medical Journal of Clinical Microbiology. It published a case of a man a few years ago in Brussels who was found dead in his bed after consuming pasta, which was sitting unrefrigerated on his work desk uh, for about five days. So he felt violently sick afterwards, but unfortunately he treated it like normal food poisoning. So he drank lots of water and he didn't take any medication. An autopsy afterwards showed that he was killed by food poisoning from a bacteria, uh, Bacillus cereus. Definitely makes you think twice about leaving food out, and certainly not for days. So here's another one. There's a whole Reddit feed for US teenagers asking for legal advice about how to get vaccinated without their parents' consent. These unfortunate children are the kids of anti-vax parents um, and their parents have refused to let them get their shots. So these kids are taken to the internet to find a loophole in the law. One 15-year-old from Minnesota called Danny figured out that he can get the hepatitis B vaccine without his parents' consent, but that's about it. Um, So he has to wait till he turns 18 to get protection against other diseases. Yeah, I mean, that's really sad for those kids, but it also gives me hope that the next generation is maybe a bit more wise to vaccination. Uh, So it's now time that we get into our guest interview for this week. Um, So our guest Ian Grubber-Steele is a science writer who interviewed Alexandra Ilkbeyan for uh, his very long but absolutely fabulous story in The Verge. Definitely check it out. Um, So I met up with Ian in Chicago last year uh, and we caught up for a coffee which then turned into quite a few beers Um, and he was very kind and gave me some pointers on how to get in touch with Alexandra. Um, He said I should request a Skype interview and that I should try and get a Russian translator. Uh, Ian also put a good word in for me with Alexandra. Um, I think he told her I was nice and not crazy, (laughs) which seemed to work, and I got an interview with Alexandra for my story. So the feature that Felicity is talking about is well worth a read, and you can go and read her feature actually in the first edition of The Medical Republic for 2019. Uh, I think it's on page 23 from memory, Uh, but yeah, definitely go and check that out. And in the meantime, let's get Ian on the phone. Hi Ian, welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. Hello Felicity, pleasure to be here. So I'm super curious to find out what were your immediate impressions of Alexandra? You know, I would say when I walked into the interview when we first started talking about sort of the the grand mission statement of Sci-Hub, I was probably ready to do what a lot of other writers had done 
I was ready to write her off as sort of an uh, Aaron Swartz type, another open access pioneer. And those, the motivations of, of many of those types of people have been fleshed out before, and it would have been kind of trite. It wasn't until later that another side of her emerged. Yeah, we got along fairly well, but what was more important to me is that she was, during the course of that article, the most complex person I had ever interviewed. What I was tasked with then was something entirely novel to me. I was not just trying to capture someone's statement on an issue. I was trying to describe the entirety of a person and what their philosophy is. And that's what I got when I was speaking to her as well, um, well, through a Russian translator. Um, she seemed like a an enigma of a person. It was very hard to figure her out. And I, I assumed that was because I didn't understand her context. Interviewing somebody over a, uh, uh, through a translator, especially remotely, it, it makes it hard sometimes to understand whether or not your your grasp or lack thereof of something someone's saying is because their philosophy on issue is half-baked or because you're just not having the context that, that they have. You don't have that same perspective. So that's definitely a, a challenge there. And I don't think it was – I mean, I certainly didn't have a a rosy view of sort of the, the patriotism with which she operated Sci-Hub. She uh, ended up having quite a, a major battle – with uh, a Russian oligarch who was known with uh, who was known for supporting science in Russia through a, a small but very surprisingly powerful uh, foundation there. Mm, so there you're talking about Dmitry Zim and his dynasty organization, which, as I understand it, um, Dmitry Zim was a philanthropist who donated a lot of money towards science, um, and uh, Alexandra was a bit of a black sheep in her position that she took towards a controversy around um, Dynasty. Yeah. Dynasty overall was, it, its research funding amounted to just about $7.6 million uh, USD, which may not amount to much, but it was enough to make it very popular uh, for well, a number of scientists. Dimitri had a history of supporting uh, independent news outlets that had been beloved but shut down by the Kremlin. And uh, well, the Kremlin at one point passed a law essentially mandating that, quote-unquote, foreign agents, that uh, any sort of organization uh, trying to advocate for political changes that had foreign funding could be listed essentially as an enemy of the state, or they could be shut down, they could, uh, their operations could be curtailed, and Dmitry Zemin's dynasty organization was classified as a foreign agent simply because he essentially kept some of his money offshore. Scientists came out in support in dynasty as well as a number of other organizations that were uh, classified as foreign agents, a lot of them being, for example, uh, organizations that supported LGBTQ rights that were classified. But Alexandra fell on a different end of the spectrum because she had seen the organizations uh, acting essentially as a think tank and its involvement 
in education. And it did have a number of classes that essentially taught political uh, ideology from sort of a more Western liberal perspective. And so she saw nothing wrong with calling what she saw a spade as a spade and saying they are involved in politics, they do have foreign funding, and she did not support them, which did not curry favor with a number of academics who called her out essentially on the Russian version of Facebook. And this was all going down in about 2014? Yeah. And it dragged on for for some time with people coming back and uh, angrily posting on her. her, uh, The site is called Vikontakte, which is, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is basically Russian version of Facebook. And for some time, people will come back and they make comments uh, about her sharing articles that sort of demeaned Zemin and his operation or the articles that she wrote on the the site, sort of calling his work into question and his motives into question for supporting science. And that made her quite angry. She has a... She has somewhat of an acidic tongue uh, from what I've read on her Facebook post and from speaking to her. She, you know, when she was pushed to that point, she responded rather vehemently in some occasions. And ultimately that played a large part in her deciding to temporarily shut down uh, access to Sci-Hub throughout Russia. What do you make of that situation? So why does she have the opposite perspective to the Russian scientists? Well, for her, open access is something that's deeply intertwined with the, the values of communism. She likes to quote this this 20th century uh, American sociologist, Robert Merton. And he had uh, these four principles that he, he called the norms of science. And they were disinterestedness, universalism, organized skepticism, and essentially communism, sort of a duty that research be shared. And so for her, that is a quintessential part of what should define open access. It's not just that things should be shared because they should be shared. It's it's intertwined for her in this idea of communism. It is a, a duty, and it is something that links closely to her, her sense of patriotism. And as you say, Alexandra differs from many Western hacktivists like Aaron Schwartz and probably the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, as well. So those people are huge advocates of freedom of information. But in Alexandra's online autobiography, she's hesitant about supporting freedom of the press. Um, I don't know if you read this. There's a line there where she says the press can be very negative, uh, which lowers trust and openness in society, thus disrupting the flow, the free flow of information. Um, Alexandra's also very pro-Putin, um, as you were talking about, uh, and she doesn't seem particularly phased by political censorship. Do you see that as a contradiction? I think that people tend to view science in it from one of two standpoints. On one hand, if perhaps you are a conservative person, you see science as an institution, as a, a series of institutions that uphold a norm and that are not too quick to change. On the other hand, people may look at the information and they don't see it so much as science so much as an institution. That's not what they think of it as. They think of it as something 
that is willing to change, that may counter the status quo, that is willing to uh, oppose government and not take it, uh, not take any information on just appeals to authority, but rather demands evidence. So you can view it as one of two things, an institution or something that is dynamic, accepts change, and opposes authority. For a lot of Western people, for a lot of Western act, uh, activists, they tend to take that view, that it is something, that second view, that it's something that opposes authority. And that's where sort of this this hand-in-hand association between open access science, uh, people who support that, with them also supporting, for example, freedom of expression, people think that that should be a, a duality, that it's, that it's one and the same, that one, anyone who supports the other should, uh, that supports one should support the other. But she's coming from it from a different perspective. She thinks of the information of science, the, the conclusions, the reports, the papers themselves that she pilots as being something that should be distributed because it's a right that should be upheld by uh, power structures. And at the end of my interview, Alexandra apologized for not being particularly good at answering our questions. Uh, and she said that she wanted to do a course in public speaking. Um, so with Alexandra, you seem to, uh, you really seem to get the sense that there's not a lot of artifice. She's exactly what she's like in real life in these interviews, faults and all. Um, she's not trying to pretend to be anything she's not. But at the same time, she doesn't want to give away many details about how SciHub operates for probably understandable reasons. Um, was Alexandra more open with you about the operations of SciHub? I would say... On the whole, not really. She was willing to tell the story of how she came to create SciHub. That she was open with. And she had all these, these lovely little details that, that made that part of the story. Like the, the cat she had in her apartment or the little boxing uh, server she had by the window in her, her dorm room. The little things like that, the personal things, she was open with. But Alexandra is, to some extent, a, a fairly paranoid individual. When she found out that there was a lawsuit against her by American companies, she expressed, or, or by American publishers, Elsevier and, and uh, American Chemical Society, she expressed fear that she would be extradited and tried in the U.S., which is not something that would happen in a, a civil case as opposed to a criminal one, but still she told me that she has not traveled back to the U.S. since. There is a, a certain sense of paranoia she carries, which is understandable given the, the target on her back. And so when it comes to things like the operation of SciHub, she is decidedly more taciturn to the point that uh, a number of people have probed for example, the, the coffers of SciHub. And she will tell you that she makes enough to support the operation, but some other uh, researchers have disagreed with some coming up with estimates of her having approximately $268,000 in unused Bitcoin, something along those lines. I know she's disagreed with that estimate, and I can't say whether or not that is or is not accurate. She's more taciturn about that, and she is especially taciturn about 
how she gets access to uh, certain publications to, to actually go ahead and pirate the papers. So some details were revealed about that uh, through the the papers and the lawsuit that uh, Elsevier filed. She She's spoken several times before, and she's mentioned this to me as well, uh, of people donating passwords to her. And that's one of those things that I'm honestly not entirely certain of, of its veracity. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if people wanted to support Sci-Hub. Uh, a lot of academics, I do not doubt they would give her uh, their information. On the other hand, there's also a marketplace where you can buy that information. Sure. And my personal concern would be that somebody else might just hack into her system and take all of that data, which then would um, compromise the security of lots of researchers around the world. Um, so it was interesting to me that she refused to answer that question about how she keeps that data secure. Yeah. And I, I suppose there's, there's something to be said for that, because I know there have been other allegations that uh, the same credentials that iHub has used have uh, have also been used to do more illicit activities uh, as far as gaining access to to publications or hacking into libraries. But I think part of the issue there is you can't say whether or not that's iHub. Um, yeah, and the other concern that I thought up when I was doing the feature was if Alexander is posting all of these millions of papers um, and people are trusting her that that's correct content. Um, she has the potential, no, I'm not saying that she's doing this, but she could go in there and select papers that she likes and delete the papers she doesn't agree with, or she could edit out paragraphs or change words. Um, so there's a question of the integrity of the content. The problem with Sci-Hub is it's not a sustainable model, so Alexandra is not doing the typesetting or the pretty graphics or the graphs or the editing, not to mention the peer review. She's not a journal, um, she's just a pirate, so um, if she manages to uh, trigger the collapse of the publishing industry, uh, who's going to be doing that work? I think that open access can work. It's that we need differentiated models. It, we, we need to have open access publications who do ask scientists for the, the uh, for some of the money up front or for the money to be taken out of grants if the uh, if grant money could be applied uh, towards publication fees as well. That might ease some of the burden on scientists individually. We also need uh, publications who put up a paywall but are willing to operate green open access programs. Payable is a Canadian startup that's doing the same thing as Sci-Hub, but they're doing it legally. So they've built basically an internet wormhole that connects digital archives like PubMed and Science Direct with green open access papers. So green open access, as you were saying, um, are versions of papers that authors are sometimes allowed to publish with their own university repositories. Um, Unpaywall is run by two researchers, one's called uh, Jason Priam, and I interviewed him for my story, um, and they've got 20 million papers, which is about a third of Sci-Hubs. Um, and it's really interesting to me that these companies are run by 
to you know one person two people but they can basically upend a billion dollar industry um, which seems to say something about the power of the internet um, and it, looking at those models it seems to me like publishers could be doing a lot better job at making it cheaper to access papers yeah absolutely uh, especially since uh, publishers may help sort of the investment that they, they put into articles but the profit margins they managed to get from some of these are, are just incredible. I know Elsevier's parent company, for example, uh, the RELX group, the Relics group, has a last time I sat, and that was admittedly about a year ago, was had something like a $35 billion market cap. It had, uh, had reportedly nearly 40% profit margins for its scientific publishing arm, and that's those profit margins are better than tech titans like Apple, Google, Amazon. So ultimately, the investment can't be as much as they are oftentimes making it out to be. So I definitely think that having other models like on paywall helps. Did you hear about Plan S in Europe? Plan S is a new coalition of 11 European funding bodies who are insisting that any research they back be published in open access journals by 2020. Um, so it seems like the open access movement's really heating up. For, for most intents and purposes, the open access movement started in 2002. And since then, the open access movement has truly exploded. I think it was uh, in 2013 that the, the Obama administration mandated that copies of research conducted through any federal agencies must be uploaded to repositories within 12 months. And there's been a number of rings like this and a true explosion in the number of, of open access, gold open access publications like PLOS. So it's at this point a time that is showing no signs of retreat. The most that paywall publications can do is lobby against uh, bills that would make information more open access, but that's using green open access. And when you spoke to the publishers for your story, what sort of vibe did you get? Did they perceive SciHub as an existential threat? So it was actually a, a funny sort of situation. Um, I reached out to the American Chemical Society and I reached out to Elsevier. And I, I believe it was Elsevier that put me in touch with Justin Mills who was a representative of the coalition I mentioned before that was formed uh, chiefly by some of the big five, like Elsevier and American Chemical Society, but now includes dozens of publications, the Coalition for Responsible Sharing. That coalition was actually formed not in response to SciHub, but in response to the popular academic networking site ResearchGate, essentially hosting, I think they alleged something like 12 million articles on their site being shared without uh, without proper uh, citation or, or links to the publication, and sort of a disrespecting the, the paywall. He mentioned a lot that every single publication in the coalition supported open access. They had different models. They had gold open access publications. Every, every publisher has a few open access journals that they were involved in green uh, open access programs where they would 
deposit papers after a certain period of time, but that doesn't mean that he didn't also kind of shrug off the very active involvement that publishers have had in opposing bills that would make information more open access and supporting mandates that would uh, make it easier for them to go after uh, internet service providers or domain name service providers for uh, for uh, as a route to stem piracy, which is something that they've done since the cases were filed against uh, against Sci-Hub. After the American Chemical Society movement, uh, or after their lawsuit went through, a mandate was passed that essentially allowed them to lean on domain name service providers and internet service providers to shut down a number of different Sci-Hub domains. And new ones popped up. But that is something that publishers are all too happy to not acknowledge or just sort of shrug off as they wave the other hand saying, look at all the ways we do share papers. You would expect that with the arrival of the internet, the traditional model of academic publishing would almost instantaneously collapse because you can connect peer reviewers and researchers together instantaneously um, and have them collaborate on papers. you can instantaneously rank papers against each other. There's a whole lot of things that the internet can do that just should supplant the old traditional model of publishing. But that didn't happen, um, which for some people in the publishing industry is quite surprising. They thought that the internet would lead to their demise as it has for many other um, old business models, but it didn't. And the main thing that kept them going was the fact that they've got this prestige. So scientists really want to publish in the top journals um, and then all the other scientists have to then uh, pay for subscriptions or the universities have to pay for subscriptions to those journals so that they can all read the best science. (laughs) So it just sort of perpetuates the model. Um, So it seems like it's, you have to have something that challenges that in order for it to shift. First of all, I mean, scientific publishing is considerably, it is considerably younger than the rest of publishing as a whole. Throughout much of publishing, we might think of the responsibilities of publication simply being, all right, well, we have an editor who fact-checks it, who proofreads the copy, and then we publish it. But scientific publication has a lot more steps. For one, there's much more emphasis on the veracity of the information. There are uh, reviewers who are going to look over every you know, every stat and statistic in there provided some good publication to ensure that it's worthwhile to, to publish. There are several reviewers that are going to look at an article when that article is run. It is oftentimes, if it's a, a more expensive publication, it's being run with graphics that had to be dropped to allow people to better understand the information that's being communicated to it. Uh, there's impact scores devised that allow publications and you know, the authors of the paper to track all the information regarding how many times it's been cited, how, how many times it's been viewed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think part of the reason why the traditional model has stuck around is that it's not that traditional uh, in the whole of publishing. And because of all of the steps involved, to me, it does make some sense that publications are still around. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see something like Sci-Hub that is completely legal, where every single paper is available the instant it gets published, <laughs> um, and it's you don't have to email the professor to get the paper or email the publisher and wait 12 hours because they happen to be in Europe and you, you're in Australia to get the paper. I think that it would be better if everything was one, under one house and one umbrella and you can work out the economics of it. But if we could all agree that that is a good thing for society, that would be fantastic. <laughs>point pen with steel spelled my, my last name s-t-i-e-h-l and point and pen spelled exactly how you put it that's it for this week's episode of the medical republic join us next week where we're going to delve into the debate around artificial sweetness is that diet coke really as guilt-free as you think find out next week